0: So, uh, like John said, we're in this series called Undone, and, and we've, been, we've been looking at the things that we do and the things that we, aren't, uh, that we ought not to do. And uh, it, if you were here last week, you get to hear OJ talk about the vice of wrath, and he started by asking this really, really important question. What do you do with the mad that you feel? It's such a great question. It's such a great question because what it, what it, what it sets out for us is that the emotion of anger in itself isn't actually a sin? Uh, anger is a response. It's it, it's the response to the real or perceived, um, uh, real or perceived, uh, real or perceived injustice and uh, in the world around us, and and that flows out of who God created us to be. Our God is a God of justice. We're created in his image, and so it stands to reason that we would want to see justice lived out in front of us and around us and through us and setting things to right and and fixing what is broken in the world. The, The difficulty lies in the fact that we ourselves are broken, and because of that brokenness, we have this irresistible proclivity to vice. So instead of always pursuing holy virtues, oftentimes we respond to our God-given desires by pursuing these tantalizing but insufficient alternatives. So far this year, as we've, as we've walked through the series, we've looked at sloth, our insufficient response to our created need and desire for real rest. We've also looked at greed, which is our insufficient response to our desire for security. And and that security can only be attained through Christ and lived out in generosity. And like OJ talked about last week, wrath is our insufficient response to our deep desire for justice. Wrath is what happens when when that passion becomes unhealthy and, and justice becomes about Us, we aren't looking for it for others, looking for it for ourselves. It comes to mean that that things have to go our way. We find in the midst of wrath that we're angry at the wrong things to the wrong extent and for the wrong amount of time. The message, though, wasn't don't be angry. The message was be angry about the right things to the right extent for the right amount of time. And so today, as we continue looking at these, these deepest desires of our heart and how we live them out, we turn to forgiveness. And we're faced with this question. If vice, if the the vice of wrath is our insufficient response to the deep desire of our heart for justice, what does it look like to be people who live the virtue of forgiveness as our proper response to that desire? If how we engage with these vices and virtues can either help or hinder people to see and experience the kingdom of God in the here or now, then the potential of forgiveness done right is huge. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at the world around us, it seems like forgiveness is in short supply. If we can get this right, y'all, if we can handle forgiveness well, we'd have an enormous influence on the people in the world around us. And it is so fitting that we as Christians should be speaking into this. Christianity is built on the foundation of, of forgiveness and grace. This should be our wheelhouse. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it abundantly clear why forgiveness is so important. You can find that answer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. In other words, what Jesus is saying right here is that if you are going to follow me, forgiveness is not optional. So let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself a forgiving person? Are you sure? How do you know for sure? Where do we begin? And this morning, we're, we're going we're gonna to begin by taking a look together at this interaction that Jesus had with two people, one who could forgive, the other who couldn't. We find that interaction in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And, and this passage, I think, reveals something that's really key to understanding what it takes to be a forgiving person. So looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave both the debts. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore... So here in Luke 7, we have an unnamed sinful woman who can forgive and Simon who can't. There are lots of ways that these two are different. And in one of those differences, we can see where forgiveness starts. So let's look at what what, 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 uh, Luke tells us about them. Both Simon and the unnamed uh, sinful woman are seeking Jesus. So what we have here isn't a contrast between someone who's interested in Christ and someone who's hostile or even a person who's interested in Christ and a person who's sort of indifferent. They are both interested in Jesus and have come to him. In fact, there's bravery in the ways that each of them approach Jesus. Think about this for a second. Simon is a member of the religious elite. And he welcomed Jesus into his home, to a meal. In that culture, what that is, is an invitation to friendship. Friendship. Also, a meal like this, it would have been open to the community. So all kinds of people could come in and witness what was happening. They'd come right in off the street, sit in the walls of the room, and and listen to their conversation. So Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus, the known friend of sinners, to his table. And he didn't seem to care who knew. That is brave. In fact, the only other Pharisee that we know who sought a personal interaction with Jesus was Nicodemus, and he did it under the cover of night because he didn't want anyone else to know. Now think of the bravery of this woman. She entered into this home knowing that it belonged to an obedient, pious, upstanding Pharisee, one who could have humiliated her and ordered her out, called her a whore, attacked her for defiling his home. They both bravely sought Jesus, yet one can forgive and the other can't. So what's what's the difference here? The difference is forgiveness. One sought Jesus as a savior. The other sought him as an example. Picture picture the scene with me. And maybe at first, this woman, she, she just stands there trying not to draw attention to herself, watching Jesus from a distance. And as she stands there, She's overcome with emotion. She can't help it. The one who loved her without conditions, the one who was a friend to her sinner's heart, he was right there. Maybe she's thinking about all the wrong things she had done and how she'd used her body for evil, but somehow she knew that Jesus had mercy on her. In that moment, she becomes overwhelmed by the grace that God had given to her in Jesus, and she begins she begins to weep. Tears started to flow, tears of relief, of of joy of gratitude that her sins had been forgiven and she was in the presence of her savior. Simon, on the other hand, he seems to seek Jesus to learn from him in a detached sort of way. He comes intellectually. He's, he's turned off by this woman's display of emotion. He doesn't like the fact that she's touching him. She doesn't, he doesn't want anything messy and up close like that. What he wants is just to know what the right way to live is. He wants Jesus's teaching, but not Jesus's forgiveness. And here's the thing, if Jesus isn't your savior, he can still be a great example for you. Your life will go better if you follow Jesus' teachings by doing things like telling the truth, by not lying, not committing adultery, by thinking of others first. But simply following Jesus' example will not make you a forgiving person, only forgiveness will. Because forgiven people forgive people. Jesus said, those who love much have been forgiven much. Those who love little have been forgiven little. Forgiving others starts with knowing that you are forgiven. This unnamed sinful woman, she knows that. She absolutely knows that she's forgiven. And as they sit at this table in Simon's house, Jesus is inviting Simon to get that truth too so interesting to me. Jesus has so much compassion for the Pharisees. He tries over and over and over with them to get, for them to get it. And it's possible that to some extent they get a bad rap. I mean, these are guys who have devoted their entire lives to trying to figure out what pleases God. That's a good thing. But in the midst of that, they missed God when he was right there with them. Simon's words and attitudes here, they are devoted by that desire to please God, but they also make it clear he is not a forgiving person. He's offended by this woman's presence in his home. He's offended by her actions. He's offended by how different she is from him. And he sits in judgment over her. And he sits in judgment over her sin. He even attempts to sit in judgment over Jesus because Jesus allowed this woman to come near him. None of it lives up to his standard. As we look at this scene, it's easy to see this woman and feel sorry for her and how she's been treated. And when we look at it, we also look at Simon. And we see that this man, despite his pursuit of holiness, has missed it. We shake our heads. How sad. Jesus is right there. And somehow Simon misses it. Dan Allender is an author and a counselor and a speaker. And I once heard him tell the story of going to his daughter's piano recital a long, long time ago when she was really young. And this is a piano recital unlike every other. You know, you have a bunch of kids that are in a room and they're all going to go up and they're going to play the pieces that they have learned. And so it's going along quite smoothly and, and it's, it's a regular piano recital. And then his daughter gets up to play her piece. And she's playing along. She gets about halfway through when she freezes. She sits there for a moment and she starts playing again, except she didn't pick up from where she left off. She went back to the beginning and started over. And, and, and in that moment, it's like a train that's gathering speed. Is she going to get it right this time? Is she going to get it right this time? And she's playing along and he's waiting and he's, he's waiting to see what's going to happen. And she gets to that same spot and she freezes again. She turns to the audience and she shrugs. What are you going to do? At that moment, her teacher comes out, she puts the sheet music in front of her, she finds her place, she plays the rest of her piece, everyone applauds politely, because that's what you do at piano recitals, and they continue on until everyone has played through, uh, through their piece. Also, at every piano recital, uh, there is a reception afterwards, and you have cookies and juice, and you talk about how, how great everyone did, and, and in, that, in, in that reception afterwards... All the other parents, they're, they're, they're telling uh, Dan how, um, how, how much they admire the spunk and the courage that his daughter had, how funny it was how she handled this little hiccup. They're telling her she did a great job. But in that moment, Dan can't even look his own daughter in the eyes because he's angry and he's embarrassed at this imperfection that she showed. So they go through the reception and on their way out to the car, Dan's walking ahead of his entire family. He's leaving them behind because he just wants to get out or he wants to get, get home and put this all behind him. When they get to the car, he's loading his daughter into the car. She looks at him, says, Daddy, why do you hate me? He says that in that moment, he's taken it back. His heart is broken. It snaps him back to the reality of what's going on in this situation. He tells her he's sorry he doesn't hate her, that he was wrong for the way that he acted, because what he realized is that something small and insignificant, like his momentary embarrassment at this imperfection that his daughter showed, was, was threatening their relationship. When he looks back on it, the, the, the question that comes to mind is, what could have happened if she hadn't had the courage to look at him and say, Daddy, why do you hate me? What if she had never said that? How often do we let the small things, the momentary embarrassments, the the small inconveniences, the the unintentional offenses, how how often do we let those take up residence in our heart? And and how long do we let them live there rent-free, impacting how we see and treat those around us, and in turn, how they see and treat us? So let me ask you again, are you a forgiving person? And what does the evidence say? If you were here last week, OJ assigned us all some homework. He asked us to write down the things that made us angry throughout the week, to keep an anger journal. How many of the offenses that you wrote down in those anger journals, how many of them were some offense against your personal standard? How many of the things were actually things that you added to the pile of issues that you've been low-key mad at someone about for a while now? O.J. mentioned that leading up to that sermon as he had walked through that process himself that most of the things that made him angry seemed to center around the disrespect that's shown to his garage. Thankfully, I don't have that problem. Um, I've made such a mess out of my garage, it would be impossible for anyone to disrespect it any more than it already is. That's not a problem for me. But we've all got our thing, right? Yeah, for me, it's my daughter's laissez-faire attitude with, what, with where trash belongs. Also, her enjoyment of making noise with a recorder or or her ukulele as loudly and repetitively as possible. And sometimes, it's the things that she repeats in public that would have been way better off if they had just been kept in private. And right now, it's the fact that I'm not the one that she wants to pick her up from school anymore. It hurts me a little bit to see the disappointment on her face after school every day. I've got an opportunity there though, right? Like I can hold onto that hurt and I can let it form a wedge between me and her or I can choose to forgive her for preferring that her mother would pick her up after school every day. And I get that. She's a better parent. She's more fun. <laughs> like, there have been a couple of times in the midst of that over the, over the past few weeks as this has gone on, there have been a couple of times where I've let my hurt feelings show. And I get that that seems small and and silly, uh, thing to get upset about, but honestly, how many of the grudges that you've held on to and how much of the resentment that you harbor started with something that sounds really small and silly when you say it out loud? I mean, obviously, there are bigger offenses in the world that we have to learn to forgive, but if we don't deal with the little things that build up over time, they can reap a huge mountain of destruction. Can you forgive your kids, your siblings, your coworkers, your friends, your parents? for not living up to your standards. And I hope so. Because let me assure you from personal experiences that, that, that people have to forgive you for similar things. I mean, let's just say that Kate doesn't get her knack for repeating publicly things that should have been kept privately from her mom. Like the time that I told my best friend's dad that my dad had called him a sissy. Not, not my best moment. Also, thanks to some home movies that I watched recently, um, I've come to see that the, her enjoyment of unnecessary, loud, repetitive noises that are challenging for adults to listen to, yeah, that's me too. In those realizations, I got a little perspective. I got a little understanding. It helped me to empathize with what it was like to be eight and not know all the rules yet on social interactions. It, it, it helped me to remember what it was like to have more energy than your body can process and to not know what to do with it. And when I can identify with her, when I can empathize with those things, it allows me to treat her with compassion. And when there's compassion in our relationship, forgiveness is way easier. And I know that sounds like a lot of steps and kind of clunky, but in reality, all those things, they kind of happen organically together. And, and there's this exercise that I picked up uh, from, from Brene Brown that, that seems to help that all make sense. And so I want to invite you guys to try that with me. So I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes. Now think about the person in your life that is the most challenging to deal with. It may be a sibling, a coworker, boss, neighbor, whoever it is. It's the person that gets under your skin and everything they do annoys you. Now I want you to answer this question. Do you think they're doing the best they can? Now I want you to imagine that Jesus comes to you and he tells you, hey, I just want you to know that so-and-so, whoever the person is that you're thinking of, they really are doing the best they can. What would that mean for your relationship with them? What would that mean for your ability to forgive them? You can open your eyes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the eternal implications of forgiveness real clear. But the implications in the here and now, those are huge also. It's, it's how you heal broken relationships. It's how you love people well. And, and forgiveness, it is the example that people who don't know Jesus and have no idea what the kingdom of God means, that is the example that they get to see that will help them understand what a relationship with Jesus and God could look like. Forgiving others starts with knowing that you are forgiven. In the late 1700s, the Countess of Huntington she invited her friend, another wealthy uh, elite, to, to hear the preacher George Whitfield give a sermon. But the friend that she invited was actually offended at the invitation because she knew about Whitfield's theology about sin, that, that we are all sinners. And so this friend she writes back in disgust to the countess, and she says this: "It is monstrous to be told." that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment, so much at variance, with high rank and good breeding. Man, the scathing. Also, isn't it kind of cool how rich people describe themselves in the same way that you and I might talk about a golden retriever? <laughs> high rank, good breeding, Very important. And look, when we, when we read that, we shake our heads, we click our tongues, we scoff at this woman, but, but in all honesty, I think we spend more time thinking like she does than we do like the tax collector who wouldn't even look up at heaven but beats on his chest and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's important to consider where we are on that, on that spectrum because forgiving others starts with knowing or remembering that you are forgiven. Another really important aspect of forgiveness is that forgiveness always comes with a cl- with a cost. The money lender in the parable that Jesus tells to Simon, he forgave both the debts, and Jesus is, is is just sets this up so brilliantly because he wants to forgive both Simon and the woman, and he wants Simon to see his need for forgiveness. The pastor he once described it like this: If a poisonous spider comes in and bites you while you are sleeping and you never wake up, you're dead. If a lion comes in while you're sleeping and mauls you and dismembers you and decapitates you, you're still dead. Is one more dead than the other? No. One's just pretty dead and the other is ugly dead. In this interaction, Simon is pretty dead. And the woman is ugly dead. Simon has, for the most part, lived a a, a nice life, very moral, upright, respectable. The woman has led a very broken and messed up life. But what Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter. You're both lost. You both need me. And you're both worth it to me. That's the message of the gospel. Whatever you owe, Jesus looks at you and says, I'll pay the price. You're worth it to me. See, forgiving a debt, it doesn't mean that no one pays. It means the debtor doesn't pay because the creditor pays instead. There's always a cost to forgiveness. The cost of our Forgiveness, it was Jesus's life. I think we're tempted to think that actually the way it worked was that it was the exchange rate was one life for all of the sins. And that may be true, but it's not fully accurate because even if it were only your individual sins that needed to be forgiven, the cost still would have been that same life. In his commentary on Luke, James, uh, John Stott says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear, by comparison, extremely trifling. So, have you seen the enormity of your sin against God? Do you remember what your forgiveness cost? I want to make a couple of things clear about forgiveness here so that we're all on the same page. First, real forgiveness is more than just words. When we say reflexively things like it's no big deal or it's fine or that's okay when someone hurts us or wrongs us, that's nothing more than doing lip service to forgiveness. And we do that because we feel like we have to or we do that because we hope that by saying the words, we're gonna protect our hearts from having to deal with the hurt and the pain that that offense costs. But real forgiveness isn't found in our words. Real forgiveness is bigger than that. Real forgiveness comes from our hearts, and sometimes that takes time. So as you think about the virtue of forgiveness, don't don't be tempted to settle for a lesser version. Don't settle for tolerating or accepting or ignoring the offense. God's forgiveness of our sin, it wasn't tolerance, it wasn't acceptance. And the forgiveness that He's called us to, it's not that either. You gotta do the work. Second, forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Let's say that I loan you my circular saw and you lose it. What forgiveness means is that I don't hold that over your head and allow it to ruin our friendship. However, it's pretty unlikely that I'm just going to immediately turn around and let you borrow my hammer drill. Third, forgiveness doesn't mean that there isn't justice. In fact, if my mom is right, then much of Kate's trying behavior is actually justice that she has been waiting on for 30 years. As she so often tells me. And I get that those may seem like small or, or, or silly examples, but listen, forgiveness it doesn't absolve people of consequences and it doesn't wink at justice when it comes to the big things either. I know that that can be hard to believe if if you're one of the many people We've had Jesus' call to forgive co-opted by someone who was abusing you. Had somebody use that to shame you and force you into forgiving them. Maybe you don't want anything to do with forgiveness because the pain that you've been through or the pain that you're still going through is, is too great. If that's you, I want you to know forgiveness does not negate consequences. If he or she is hurting you, then then forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to stay, and it also doesn't mean that you have to stay silent. I also want to be real clear that the cost of forgiveness on your part isn't to continue allowing yourself to suffer physical or emotional abuse. Forgiveness doesn't negate the consequences. The thief who died on the cross next to Jesus was forgiven. Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. What he didn't say to him was, now you can get down off the cross. In fact, that thief, he turns and tells the other thief, the one who doesn't believe that we are getting what we deserve. Repentant people will take the consequences. I also want to make sure that you all know that forgiveness doesn't negate justice. In Romans 12, 19, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome who are living under under the threat of persecution. That persecution looked like being set on fire and used as a candle at a garden party, garden parties that Nero would throw. Paul writes to him and he tells him this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It's Deuteronomy 32, 35. Practicing the virtue of forgiveness isn't to say there is no justice, it's to put justice back in God's hands. It's saying to God, I relinquish my right to retribution for this sin against me. I'm refusing to sit and judge and jury over this person that hurt me because you're the only righteous judge. It means laying down our claim to what we think justice looks like and trusting in God's perfect justice. Forgiveness doesn't negate justice. Forgiveness puts justice in the hands of the one who can wield it best. C.S. Lewis writes, to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. Now, oh, there's a lot of truth in those words. Forgiveness is hard, and sometimes forgiveness is only possible when we work at it every single day. Depending on who wronged you, the real work of forgiveness for you may mean having a difficult conversation with them for the sake of restoring that relationship. It could also mean reconciling the fact that they will never care or accept that they hurt you. It may also mean establishing good boundaries so that your forgiveness doesn't look like an invitation to further abuse. Sometimes forgiveness is a choice that we have to reaffirm, to have to reaffirm every day, because that's how often we're reminded of the consequences that someone else's sin against us has wrought in our lives. These consequences, sometimes they don't go away this side of heaven. That's hard. So if we're going to forgive, we've got to choose, again, every day, to trust God, to be just. have to choose again every day to relinquish our right to retribution for that sin and turn it over to the only righteous judge. Is there somebody in your life right now that you need to forgive but haven't? Is it maybe your mom or dad who just can't see that you're not a little kid anymore? Is it a brother or sister who keeps taking your stuff without asking, is it the wife or the husband who doesn't even seem to see you anymore? Maybe it's the person who was supposed to love you unconditionally and didn't. Or the coworker who undermined you to get a promotion, the business partner who left you holding the bag. The person who hurt you and has never shown a bit of remorse. Luke tells us that on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And Charles Spurgeon said that he loved that prayer because of the indistinctness of it. What that means is this you can make the argument that them refers specifically to the people who drove the nails into his hands and his feet and pierced his side, but it's not limited to that. When Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, he was giving the hope of mercy to every single person who had ever come to him for forgiveness. Spurgeon continued. Now into that pronoun, them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. How much have you been forgiven? Will you pay the price that forgiveness asks? Will you keep at it until forgiveness is real? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you are a God who has forgiven us. We thank you that there is hope for us because of your forgiveness. The reality is that for us, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness takes work. It costs us something. God, I pray that whoever it is we need to forgive, whatever the cost of that forgiveness is, that you would help us to clearly see the work that we need to do. God, I pray that uh, in the midst of that, your Holy Spirit would empower us to walk all the way through it. Give us the strength to stay committed to it until it is complete. Help us to remember to do it again every day if we have to. Thanks for sending your son to die in our place. God, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the strong son of God. Amen.